fall of the empire. What caused the church to grow in just a few short years? There was just a fledgling few disciples that were following that Jesus. And, and now he's the Lord of the Gentiles. And there's actually uh, centurions and others in Caesar's household that call themselves Christians openly. How did that all happen? And then you'd probably even ask, What's a church? What's this thing called church? And who in the world is Paul? The book of Acts answers all those questions and many more. If you look on your notes, the book of Acts traces the expansion of Christianity across the Mediterranean rim from the Jewish capital of Jerusalem to the Gentile capital in Rome. It explains how the Jewish Messiah became Lord of even the Gentiles. So before Jesus ascended, he gathered his Jewish disciples. He told them to go and make disciples of all nations. The book of Acts reveals just how that took place. What an exciting journey. And it begins, Acts chapter 1, and the writer that the Lord used to record the history of the church was Dr. Luke. He wrote both in his gospel and Acts to a friend named Theophilus. The name Theophilus means friend of God. We wonder if that was his pagan name, most likely he ditched his pagan name when he became a believer to follow Jesus. Like Saul became Paul. And to honor Christ, he changed his name, a friend of God. Bible teachers believe that he was possibly a Roman official. Evidently, he was a close friend of Luke. Dr. Luke traveled with Paul as his personal physician. Later in the book of Acts, he writes of Paul's journeys in the first person. He was there with Paul when all of this took place. He was a historian. Possibly the two years that Paul spent in Caesarea in prison, he would visit with Paul and then he would go check out the coast that Paul talked about, or he'd check out Antioch or Galilee or Samaria, all, all the stories and accounts that Paul talked to him about. He'd go check firsthand. Often in Roman times, a rich benefactor would uh, bankroll work of art or history like Luke was called to do. Theophilus may have sponsored Luke's work. If he did, what a wonderful contribution he has given to the church of the living God. So here we go, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Look at that word, began. Things are just getting started. And on your notes, in his gospel, Luke had written of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. 
But that was only the beginning. The book of Acts is the continuation of the gospel story. Jesus is alive. He's continuing his work on this earth through his disciples. He works in and through his disciples. He speaks personally to people's hearts all around the world today. Jesus is alive and he is working in our midst. That's what makes being a Christian so exciting. Our Lord is alive. He's here. He's attending this church service. He's walking around and he's even at times touching people's hearts personally. Some years ago, after uh, Sunday morning, later in the week, I just happened to be sitting down and talking with a close friend. And they said, Pastor, I want you to know something. Something really interesting happened to me last Sunday. I go, oh, good. Glad some, somebody got something interesting out of it. But anyway, he said, I was had a rough week. I had to stay up late. When I got there on Sunday, I was so tired. <sighs> I was having a hard time staying awake. And all of a sudden, I felt somebody tap my shoulder. And I was sitting on the aisle. Eric, right about where you're sitting, I think. So watch out. Okay. And I turned around to see who tapped my shoulder, and there was nobody there. But then in my heart, the Lord spoke to me and said, what's coming up next, the pastor's going to share, that's for you. Pay attention. I go, really? True story. And I go, Lord, thank you. I need all the help I can get. (laughs) He's alive. You know, Matthew eighteen twenty says that when two or three gather together in his name, he's in our midst. He's here right now, folks. Gospel goes on. Luke goes on. Until the day in which Jesus, verse 2, was taken up after through the Holy Spirit had He had given commands to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive. Underline that word, alive. He presented himself alive after suffering many infallible proofs. After the resurrection, Jesus dropped in on the disciples, literally. They'd be in a locked room, And he dropped in. They had no idea even how he got into the room. It's a a clue about our resurrected bodies and what they will be like. And then he would eat with them. And I like that part about the resurrected bodies, by the way. Forty days, he caused them to understand that even though most of the time he wasn't visible, they couldn't see him, he was there with them. And he would 
be eavesdropping in on what they were talking about. And the Bible even talks about the Lord eavesdropping on the conversation of the saints and how he records those conversations and they're stored for eternity as the saints of the living God just love God and share and fellowship with one another. He would be in their midst visibly from time to time. So Thomas tells the other disciples, you saw him? Oh yeah, right. I'm not going to believe this resurrection stuff unless I can put my finger into the imprint of the nails in his hands or my hand into his side where the spear thrust into his side. A week later, when Jesus appeared again and Thomas was in the the mix, he said to Thomas, hey, go ahead. Put your hand in my side. Go ahead, reach out and touch the nail prints. And Thomas realized that even though he hadn't seen Jesus, that Jesus was right there when Thomas said these things. And Jesus heard every word that he said, even though he was behind locked doors. I love Jesus' personal words to Thomas when he said this, John twenty twenty nine. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And my prayer is that, like Thomas, we would be able to grasp the fact, even though we may not see him or be able to physically reach out and touch his wounds like Thomas was able to, we would know, because of the testimony of these disciples, because of the fact of the resurrection, because of the promise that Jesus gave us when we gather together, he's in our midst we would know that Jesus is truly with us this day. Luke goes on in verse 3. He was seen by them during 40 days. And speaking of these things, he was speaking pertaining the kingdom of God. Now the Greek word for seen is optonomei and It's our word for ophthalmologist or eye doctor, probably even an eye surgeon. It literally means Jesus was being eyeballed, carefully looked at, stared at, scrutinized by these disciples. The disciples didn't just gaze at Jesus, and you'll notice this is number four, with wispy, dreamy looks. No, they were scrutinizing him. They struggled with the fact, he's alive? Yes, he is. Like Thomas, they all struggled with this reality that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Wouldn't you? If your leader had been crucified and you saw him die on the cross of Calvary 
And the Roman centurion thrust a spear into his side and out poured water and blood. Limp, buried, three days. And then word comes back, the grave is empty. He's arisen. Wouldn't you eyeball him when he showed up carefully? Wow. Also, we learn in 1 Corinthians 15.6 that at one time there were over 500 followers of Christ that saw him personally. Dr. Luke knew that the faith of future generations, our faith, would hinge on the testimony of these dear eyewitnesses. He made sure the evidence of Jesus' resurrection was so undeniable so irrefutable, so clear, so conclusive that none of the disciples and we would ever doubt that Jesus is alive. Not, and not surprisingly, none of them did doubt. And to a man, the disciples gave their lives for Jesus' sake. Luke goes on, verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. Jesus has made these promises again and again to these disciples. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. We're going to take just a moment and look at what the Bible teaches about the baptism of the Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit in the disciples' lives and in our lives today. Number one, the Bible teaches that He, God the Holy Spirit, is with people to convict them of their need to be forgiven and be born again. Uh, Gospel of John 16, verses 7 through 11. Jesus' words, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, by the way, that's the only unforgivable sin. The blood of Jesus covers every other sin. But when you refuse him and refuse to believe in him, there is no forgiveness for that sin. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And Jesus lived that perfect life, ushered right home into heaven of judgment because of the ruler of this world is judged when Jesus died on the cross of Calvary Satan was judged sins were forgiven for anyone that would turn to Jesus the second relationship of God the Holy Spirit to his to the disciples of Jesus number two he comes in a person, the moment they receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. And then some verses that talk about that. 
Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with God the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of promise. 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul tells the disciples, the church, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. And Ephesians 5, therefore don't be unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Don't get all wrapped up in the things of this world. Don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Christ in us is the power to begin to have a changed life and to begin to become more like Jesus. One of my favorite verses is 2 Corinthians 3.18. talks about the process of Christ in our lives. We're the temple of the living God. And as we turn to Christ and we spend time with him, he literally shines on us and we begin to change from the inside out. We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. We're being transformed into Jesus' image. Our lives are being changed from the inside out. Just as by the Spirit of the Lord. This is why Paul tells us, you need to be filled with the Spirit. You need to seek the Lord with all your heart as a believer. Pastor Chuck puts it this way. He says, Calvary Chapel believes the Holy Spirit provides the power and the life of a believer to give him victory over sin and over the flesh. We are to walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh. He who walks after the Spirit will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The Holy Spirit gives power over the flesh life, over our fallen nature. He's the power in our lives to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. So we see the dynamic power of the Spirit in us, which comes when we accept Jesus He begins that work in us, transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. It's Christ in us that begins to make us into men and women who begin to look more and more and talk more and more and act more and more and change from the inside out and have power to live for Christ in this broken world that we live in. And then finally, Jesus here touches on the third relationship of God the Holy Spirit with believers. He comes upon his disciples to empower them for ministry. Acts 1, verse 5 and 8. You shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then you'll be witnesses for me. So, Jesus is right there. He's sharing this with these disciples. And they should be thinking and asking and focusing on 
God the Holy Spirit is going to do all of that for us. And Now tell us exactly how that's going to happen, this baptism of the Spirit. What's that all about? But they were still kind of hung up on something else. Right then and there, they were going, Jesus, we thought that you were going to take care of the Romans and you were going to bring your kingdom to earth and we're kind of focused on the political stuff. So they'd come together, verse 6, and they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? I, we thought that that's what, that's what it was all about, being the Jewish Messiah, that that's why you came. And he said, it's actually, verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Right now, this is what I want you to know. Right now, this is the most important thing for you to know. This was true 2,000 years ago, and it's just as true today. Right now, as a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, this is the most important thing for you to know. Verse 8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Right now, you're called to be my witnesses. Right now, you're called to be my ministers. Right now, wherever I have you, you need to live for me and to be filled with God the Holy Spirit to the point that right now you are equipped to minister to others. The Holy Spirit will come upon these disciples to empower them for service, for ministry, and to be his witnesses. I love this verse that Jesus shared. And it's an open door and an open invitation to anyone who thirsts for more of him. John seven thirty-seven through 39. Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He spoke this concerning the Spirit. Now notice also about verse 8. Here Jesus provides the disciples with power, with purpose, and with a plan. The power, of course, is God the Holy Spirit now in our lives when we, we've received him as our Savior. Our purpose is to be witnesses. As we're filled with the Spirit, as the Spirit literally, we're baptized by the Spirit, we're given, we're given power to become witnesses for Christ and ministers for Christ. And his plan is to spread out from wherever we become a believer. They were in Jerusalem. 
is to spread out in our home first, touching all those that we love, our families, our neighborhoods, our community, our nation, the world. Verse 8 becomes an outline, literally, for the book of Acts. Chapters 1 through 7, the church will reach out into all Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 9, Judea and Samaria. And finally, chapters 10 through 28, we see it going to the end of the earth. And that was, in a sense, just the beginning of the work of the Holy Spirit as the church just exploded with the love of Christ in the world in those days. Now, Satan will continually try to get believers distracted. These disciples were thinking, we, we, we thought you came to take care of our nation politically. And Jesus says, no, I came to take care of the whole world spiritually. I came that whoever would believe in me would have eternal life. I came as the light to the world. Satan keeps wanting to get us distracted, but Jesus wants us to focus on what's really important, especially in these days that we're going through. His power, His purpose, His plan for His church, wherever He has planted us. And finally in your notes, to fulfill such a grand commission the disciples will need supernatural help. And so do we. Verse 9. And when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Have you ever wondered about that cloud? A couple things in the Old Testament about that cloud. Maybe about that cloud as I thought about this. When the tabernacle of the Lord was finished, it was covered with a cloud of glory, the presence of God. When the temple was dedicated, Scripture records the cloud of glory filling it. And I believe here in Acts, Luke sees when Jesus is now ready to be taken up to be with the Father in heaven. The same cloud of glory, I think, received him. And being a, a, a little strange, I kind of see that, wow, I wonder if that was a portal, a, 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 a space-time continuum thing that happened right then and right there, that all of a sudden there was a direct connection with heaven itself. And Jesus stepped through that portal, that cloud of glory. Welcome home, son. Well done. Well, I don't know. But while they looked on, verse 10, they looked steadfastly, and there they are, <laughs> eyeballing, staring, scrutinizing. Whoa! And they're looking towards heaven as he went up. And behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. 
who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Were, were they the two guys, Moses and Elijah, on the Mount of Transfiguration? Possibly. Were the angels? Possibly. Verse 11, And this same Jesus, they said, who was taken up from heaven, from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Possibly that cloud of glory, that portal, will open again, and Jesus will return. In verse 12, so they returned to Jerusalem. Obedience to Jesus' directions, the disciples stay in Jerusalem. Remember, look back at verse 4. He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Don't let anything distract you. Don't go back to fishing. You wait on the Lord. And the promise, God the Holy Spirit is on the way. And so they awaited further instruction. As we close our service today, we're going to close with a time of communion, the first Sunday of the month. This is the Lord's table. It's two things at least. Number one, it is a testimony to the world that Jesus loves them with all his heart and his body and his blood was shed on Calvary's cross for them. It's also a reminder to believers that this is who we are because of what Christ has done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. And then the Bible also says it's a testimony that the Lord is going to return someday, that he's alive. So as the communion is passed out, this is the Lord's table. It's up to you if you would receive the communion, if you do it in a way that's honoring to the Lord, to realize that his body was broken for you and his blood was shed for you. Thank you. As we come the communion don't let anything distract you Jesus has given us the promise of power the purpose of what our life is all about and the plan and as we look to Jesus this morning just a reminder from John chapter 7 Jesus invitation if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He, of course, spoke of God the Holy Spirit. To live in the world that we live in, we need supernatural help cannot live for Christ in your own strength and own power. 
You cannot become a Christian trying to earn salvation. You can't get there from here. That's why Jesus said, that's why I had to die on the cross for you. God the Holy Spirit might be with some of you. Jesus might be speaking to your hearts. And he might be reaching out and touching your heart and saying, put your trust in me. I love you with every fiber of my being. I died for you. I did this for you. Trust me. And if you believe in your heart, you confess, I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe my sins are forgiven. I believe he rose from the grave. Then God the Holy Spirit, he'll be born from above. Maybe you've been distracted by many things as a believer and pulled this direction, worried about that. Jesus says it's time to come back and focus on the power that I have for you, the purpose that I have for you, and the plan. And you, you're my witness. You're, you're my minister. We need supernatural help to do that. As you come to the communion table, ask for that baptism, that filling, that overflowing that the Lord has for you today. For I received from the Lord that which he also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant, when Jesus' blood was shed on the cross, blotted out, washed away the sins of anyone that would come to him and believe in his name. It's a new agreement. It's in his blood. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you actually become a witness, a minister, and you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes again. Good job, church. Proclaiming the love of Christ this day. Stand with me and we'll close our service. So good to see everybody today. Lord, as we have taken communion, it's my heart's desire that there might have been someone or someone's here today that might not have realized how much you love them. And that for them, your body was broken and your blood was poured out.
and that today they might simply come to you and say, I believe. And they're born by the Spirit of the living God into your family. What a glorious event that is. And then, Lord, we come to you. And this world is always distracting us in one direction or another. Help us to get focused back to your power, your purpose, your plan, that we might be filled to overflowing with you and be your witnesses and your ministers in this broken world that we live in. Thank you for who you are and what you've done for us that we could not do for ourselves. We worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Shake somebody's hand, elbow bump, whatever. God bless. Have a great Sunday.